Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fair Voice. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but the opinions expressed here do not necessarily represent the opinions of Fair Mormon, the organization, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am Hannah Syriac, your host, and today we're going to have a super inter- interesting interview with Joseph. So, Joseph, why don't you just take a moment, introduce us to you, tell us who you are, where you're from, what you're doing with apologetics, that sort of stuff. Just go for it. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Joseph Lawal. Um, I was born in England originally. My family uh, moved kind of all over for a while. Um, I'm at Indiana University now doing my undergraduate degree in philosophy and classical studies. Uh, I'm married to my lovely wife, Savannah, and I have a, a young daughter who's nearly two. Um, as far as my interests go, um, so with my classical studies major, I'm, I'm studying Latin and Greek, um, but my interests uh, are primarily in philosophy, so that's kind of secondary. Uh, in philosophy, um, I have some interest in, um, specifically in Thomas Aquinas, um, and that's kind of where the Latin comes in, mm-hmm. but um, particularly my interests are in contemporary philosophy, so in the contemporary philosophy of religion, uh, in epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of language, um, that sort of thing, and kind of some meta-philosophy as well. Um, so I'm working on an, an honors thesis on um, uh, Hilary Putnam uh, and his work, um, which kind of gets into a lot of areas of philosophy. Uh, in terms of apologetics, uh, I just recently started a, a YouTube channel called LDS Philosophy, uh, the aim of which is to kind of um, help introduce members of the church to philosophy uh, and also discuss issues in the church from a philosophical perspective. And there's a lot that that, that touches on in, in apologetics. Um, yeah, so that's, that's probably a, a decent introduction. What made you want to do apologetics? Uh, I mean, I've had an interest in in kind of all the topics that the church touches on um, for a long time, you know, in, in the study of scripture and in history, uh, but I've uh, come to really, really love the philosophical side. Um, so that the, this, the, even, you know, the, the epistemology that we kind of presuppose in talking about a witness of the spirit and that sort of thing, uh, but in the metaphysics also that, that we talk about uh, or that we presuppose, you know, our cosmology. And so... Um, uh, I've, I've always enjoyed these sorts of conversations. I've, I've you know, I've had uh, long-time friends with whom I've, I've spoken a great deal about religion. And I think it was just a natural outgrowth of that. I, I really am drawn to kind of systematic thinking uh, and it's very appealing in, in our worldview to kind of deal with that systematic thinking. And so it, it, I think that systematic thinking itself becomes a sort of type of apologetics, if that makes it sort of positive apologetics. Where do you think the direction of apologetics needs to go? If that well, makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I, I would love to see it become more philosophically aware, at least self-aware. Uh, and that's, I guess we'll talk about that uh, when we talk about the sort of program uh, that I've laid out. But I think um, currently there's a really great amount and, and a very high quality work being done on history and on exegesis. Um, and that is excellent and of the greatest import, but it will be improved, I think, significantly by uh, being undergirded by a solid understanding of epistemology and metaphysics and, and a great deal of other issues in philosophy, but primarily, I think prim- first and foremost, epistemology, maybe secondarily metaphysics. Yeah. So I would love to see more work on Latter-day Saint philosophy. Being done. There is some good, really good work done, um, but it's definitely uh, not in, in the same quantity as, as is a lot of other work. Yeah, I totally agree. I've really liked what Jeffrey Thane and Ed Gant have done and obviously yeah. what you what you've done in Tark too. Um, but I want to at this point transition into what you've been doing. So, 
Um, it's called a program for a Latter-day Saint worldview right now. Um, so what exactly is a worldview? How do you understand a worldview? Yeah, so this this program, this this piece you're referring to is just kind of a, a, a draft of a summary of some ideas I have about uh, how we ought to approach kind of worldview apologetics. So yeah, worldview uh, in the way that I'm using the term is a, a sort of collection of claims. Uh, and, and you can say beliefs. Um, there's a couple of reasons that I lay on the paper why I think claims makes a little bit more sense, but it's, you know, for, for this sort of conversation, it's basically interchangeable. So the beliefs that we have form a sort of web. Um, so, so we have beliefs about, uh, you know, the existence of God, and then we believe in the Book of Mormon and that, that we have a living prophet and these sorts of things. And they form a, a very important part of the way that we think about the world as a whole. But they're undergirded by, I think, more fundamental beliefs about, uh, say, the way that we come to have knowledge or about the nature of ultimate reality. And so I think a worldview is just a set of claims about certain types of, of basic topics. And so, yeah, as I said, at the base probably is uh, things like epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language. And then you build into that things like theology, if it's a theistic worldview, right? At least about the nature of God, about the relationship of, between God and mankind, about kind of the fate of mankind and of the universe. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you kind of move outwards from these very core principles and you get to kind of outer lying theological principles, right? So the Christian and Latter-day Saint worldview uh, is probably in many ways more similar than uh, an atheistic and Latter-day Saint worldview. So they will have more core elements in common. Uh, and obviously an atheistic worldview will include no theology at all. Uh, but yeah, so I think a, a worldview is just a, a collection of claims about certain kinds of topics, which we can, yeah, what, what yeah, I've, I've kind of, I think, given a, a outline of what sort of topics I'm, I'm thinking of here. But yeah, that's, that's how I see a worldview. So how do you, how do you see the, the formation of a worldview going, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, so in, in the paper, I lay out three stages. Um, so I think, and, and this, uh, as I say in the paper, it's not a linear process. I think um, any way that you think about it, it has to be linear, but this, the process by which we actually acquire a worldview is not at all linear. So we derive, say, certain epistemological and metaphysical propositions from scripture, right? So maybe uh, the the fact that the, the beginning, the, uh, the, the universe had no beginning, right? We don't believe in a creation ex nihilo, so that the universe always be, be existed. That's a metaphysical proposition, but we derive it from scripture. So I see the sort of metaphysical proposition as being fairly basic to the worldview. And um, the interpretation of scripture, I think, in, in the way I frame worldviews comes later, but in fact, we did derive that proposition from scripture, right? So I think of it of, of, of setting it up formally because we have informal worldviews, but in, in kind of formalizing one, becoming self-aware of it, I think it's very natural to, at the first stage, talk about what a worldview is and talk about rules for arbitrating worldview disputes, because I think the rules are a little bit different than in ordinary academic disputes. And then I think you would set up framework principles. And this would be basically all of philosophy, epistemology, metaphysics, um, political philosophy, ethics. I think you would even include things like aesthetics in this. Uh, and also, I think some very big questions in science, uh, where, where it kind of t overlaps a little bit with philosophy of science, uh, as well as much of theology. And then you would move from, from, so we have the worldview stage, the framework stage, to an application stage, where we would talk about, particularly in a theistic worldview, the particular interpretations of scripture, um, uh, kind of historical defenses of certain propositions, like the Joseph Smith was a prophet, right? And that's, again, where a lot of the work is being done. Um, so I, I present it in this linear fashion. In fact, uh, it's much more complicated than that at the, you know, the kind of psychological level. How we actually come to acquire these beliefs, I think, is as I said, it's, it's like a web um, with core beliefs in the center and, and 
really, yeah, it's, it's a very messy process actually, actually acquiring these worldviews. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree that it's a really messy process. And I liked a, a lot of what you said there because I do feel like we have these beliefs that are contingent up, upon each other. Um, like for me, the belief of a book of Mormon historicity is inherently contingent upon my belief in Joseph Smith as a prophet. Yeah, right. Um, not, it's not independent of that. But I think what we've seen recently is that people are kind of parsing out these beliefs saying like, oh, you don't have to believe that this particular work is a work of scripture. Or you don't have to believe that this right. is an actual commandment. So what, what do you think led to that? That's um, a big question. Yeah, well, I, honestly, I do think that um, not being fully aware of the way that these worldviews fit together makes it much easier to, to try to separate issues like that. So I think it would be very difficult uh, to, to belong, to, to kind of hold anything like an Orthodox Latter-day Saint worldview and deny the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I mean, I know that people do, but I think when you look at the way the claims interrelate, as you said, they're contingent upon each other and, and sometimes intercontingent, right? Um, and so I think it's very difficult to affirm the necessary propositions like that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but then deny that he uh, you know, translated an authentic historical record. And that's a very difficult thing to do because of the way, yeah, that the claims interrelate. So, so a lack of self-awareness on, on those points or a lack of understanding of, of how um, epistemology um, kind of both widens and, and narrows the options available to us makes it possible to, to separate issues that I think very probably can't or can't rationally be separated. How do you determine what rules should exist within your worldview? Yeah, I, I, I mean, so, so really, um, when I say rules for arbitrating worldview disputes, it sounds like there are rules kind of external to these worldviews, but in fact, they have to grow out of the worldviews themselves. So I think one good example, I mean, so really, all of this is, is through dialogue with oneself or with others, right, that we arrive at these conclusions. But if you think about, say, um, uh, the, the concept of a burden of proof, it comes up all the time in all sorts of discussions, but I think especially in, in religious ones, right? So an atheist might say, well, you know, you believe that God existed, the burden of proof is on you. I don't have to believe it until you prove it to me, right? And in fact, you, you can't rationally believe it until you've proven it. Um, you know, the same for the Book of, Book of Abraham or the Book of Mormon, right? You can't believe it's historical until you've, until you've proven it to me. The burden is on you because you're making the active claim. Um, so, so we kind of borrow that concept from, from legal proceedings, right? Where there is a defendant who is, is presumed innocent. And that's why there is a burden of proof because, we, because of the certain values that we have, the kind of um, uh, legal values, we, we, we think it's worse to condemn an innocent man than to let free a, a guilty man. And so we say you, there's, a, there's a presumed um, innocence and you have to, to, the burden of proof is on the prosecution to show that that innocence is either impossible or very nearly impossible, right? The burden is to shift the presumption of innocence. And you do see it, and there's a place for it in, in various sciences. Um, actually, I think it's really more a practical place. I don't think it's really particularly normative. So if you, um, Thomas Kuhn is a very influential philosopher of science. There's actually been some appreciation of his work in the church. I know Kevin Christensen has some excellent essays drawing on the work of Kuhn. Um, Kuhn is actually a little bit more problematic than I think people realize, but the kind of descriptive element of his view of science is not, I think, especially controversial. So he says basically that um, science operates within these certain paradigms. Normal science has these paradigms, these assumptions that they make, and basically everything is assumed by 
scientists except at the very periphery where they're pushing out the outward edge of of uh, science of knowledge and that's this is not the view that many people have of of science it, i think they assume a sort of fallibilist where you know scientists are are questioning everything and that's not in fact how science is done as, as thomas kuhn demonstrates uh, but i think the so the point i'm making here is um that the, the burden of proof is a practical matter. It's very, very difficult for scientists to work together unless they assume basically everything except for the outward edge, right? The, 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 where they're pushing knowledge. Uh, and so, yeah, in order to collaborate, they have to work from common ground. And so for a scientist to introduce something new, the burden of proof, uh, if, if, sorry, something that kind of undermines previous scientific assumptions, the burden of proof is there practically so that every scientist isn't questioning every assumption and knowledge never gets anywhere. But I think in worldview disputes, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible to talk of a, a burden of proof because what you're saying is there is a, a default position and your claim is to try to change that, right? So you, you want to say the Book of Mormon is true or you want to say God exists. The burden of proof is on you because the default position is that it's not true or the default position is that God doesn't exist. But there is no default worldview. That's, that's kind of a, 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 an incoherent concept. We each individually make positive claims. So the positive claim of the atheist the, the claim, the proposition included in his worldview is God doesn't exist. Or the proposition included in the, you know, the non-Latter-day Saints worldview is the Book of Mormon is not authentic. And so that sounds kind of counterintuitive to say that it's a positive claim, right? It's, it's a negation of our positive claim. Uh, but each worldview does, is going to include negations of the propositions of other worldviews. And so there's no burden of proof because there's no default here, right? It's either or, and we're not currently standing on either side, right? We kind of start in a neutral position, not that there really is one. Um, but to, to start on either side and insist there's a burden of proof would be to beg the question. But again, this, th I'm making this claim, uh, you know, presumably one could, could um, develop a worldview in which they, they challenge this claim. But I think um, I'm only relying on concepts that would be common to nearly every worldview and would be agreeable. I think, um, yeah, so, so these sorts of how we arbitrate worldview disputes would, would grow out of a worldview, but I think a lot of them are just basic epistemology and you don't have to rely on them particularly controversial claims to develop these sorts of many of these sorts of rules. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point too, is that there are assumptions within every single foundation. So how would you respond to someone? This is one of my favorite things is, you know, I'll have people who are atheist or agnostic come to me and say, well, you believe in God, so you cannot be objective. Um, do you, would you like to yeah i feel like that resonates with you too yeah would you like to respond to that because that felt like a really good segue into that i think it's an interesting interesting issue yeah i mean i i can't fault people for holding this position i, I disagree very strongly and in fact i think it is an irrational view um but, but obviously it's not irrational for someone to hold it if they if they kind of aren't aware of the epistemological issues involved so it's, it's actually there's actually a quote by um Mullerstein that's going around and people are, are really upset about it, right? Where he says, I start with an assumption that I fit evidence to my paradigm. And people are saying, well, that's not, that's not scholarship. This is clearly just, you know, just biased apologetics. And I think what is not understood about that is that this is exactly what everyone has to do. It's, it's an in, unavoidable fact. And so the way he phrases it is something we're not used to. But so people have this view of science or of knowledge generally is proceeding by, well, I see some facts and the facts lead to a conclusion. And I accept that conclusion, right? And you could start with an assumption and then just kind of change the facts or ignore some, uh, but that's the wrong thing to do. You, you don't do that if you're a scholar. But if you look at the history of science, right? Or I mean, the history of anything, but the history of science you can look at particularly. I mean, look at, so, I mean, you know, Aristotelian science, Aristotle had this metaphysics, right? The substance and there's properties and he had, you know, uh, teleology. So there's these, these inherent natures, right? And so he, he 
he had this taxonomy. He divided the animals and it wasn't like a convention. Like we think of the division of, you know, the animal kingdom today. He thought he was, he was latching onto real ontological differences between kinds in the world. And so he adopted, uh, he, he adapted the, the facts to his paradigm, right? And the same thing, you know, you look at the early, early modern period, all of the great scientists and philosophers of the time had these insane, really complex, really beautiful metaphysical systems, right? Newton, this, this great, you know, uh, kind of hallmark of science, right? Who, who in the scolium to the, to the Principia is, is talking all about theology, right? I mean, he, he's, he's conforming it to his paradigm. And, and so, and, and I can give some more concrete examples, right? So you think about, um, say, a critic of the church who wants to deny uh, that, you know, any, any of our, of our uh, newly introduced scriptures are, are authentically historical, right? So like the book of Abraham. And so when they approach that, they, they give all these evidences as to why it's unlikely that Joseph Smith translated this. Uh, you know, they might talk about his character or they might talk about the fact um, that they, they don't see the, the actual papyri that we have as being related to the book of Abraham. And so they have this position and they think they've arrived at that based on the evidence. Well, so the, the Latter-day Saint apologist position is, well, that we have, you know, evidence that seems to speak to the contrary. So we have the fact that Joseph Smith is describing traditions about Abraham that later turned out to be authentic, but which he, he couldn't at the time have known. And so the critic has to adapt that, you know, evidence to his or her paradigm. And so they might say, well, Joseph Smith was a lucky guesser, or maybe Joseph Smith had some secret access to something. Um, and that's the, that's the funny story that Hugh Nibley tells of, um, I think it was on, on the Enoch um, uh, portions of the book of Moses, right? Where Joseph had these kind of remarkable, quote unquote, predictions about, uh, you know, Enoch traditions that later turned out to be authentic and, you know, published, uh, discovered in, in manuscripts, you know, after Joseph, you know, uh, one of them was from the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So a hundred years after Joseph Smith lived. Um, and so uh, one of the gentlemen, I don't remember his name, working on the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of the Giants, uh, says, well, there must have been some esoteric society in, in Italy that like brought, you know, a, a manuscript they had to Joseph Smith and, and had him read this and, and because that's the only way to explain it, right? And so everybody has to adapt. There is always going to be conflicting evidence. Just following the evidence to the conclusion doesn't make any sense. We always interpret evidence. So just, just like we have to interpret certain seemingly dif difficult evidences into our paradigm, critics also have to say, well, you know, Joseph Smith uh, must have guessed about, about these particular traditions by Abraham. All of these aren't actually representative of real traditions by Abraham. The, the apologist is misrepresenting, right? But everyone has to adapt uh, um, th these, these different evidences to a, a unified theory, because if you just accept every piece of evidence at face value, you're going to have a totally incoherent view on the micro scale and on the macro scale. It's, it's not a, a tenable way of, of looking at the history of science or at the way that we can build worldviews. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that comes from like a deconstructionist perspective where, you know, there, there is no longer any sense of objectivity and everything is about your subjective experience and that reality is inherently a subjective versus objective. My question to you though is a lot of people will hear things like that and then be like, okay, so you're just putting everything in your paradigm. How is that intellectually honest? So could you speak a little bit about that? And then also at the same time, speak about how to evaluate the truth claims that go into a paradigm. And I'm just going to back up for a second and say, hey, like when we're, when we're talking about paradigms, there are warrants to every paradigm, which are truth claims that you yep. accept. And right. you have, and everyone accepts some truth claims. I, I, I don't care who you are. Like if you wake up in the morning, you accept a truth claim, <laughs> at least yeah. one of them. And your truth claim might be that there is no such thing as truth, but that's still a truth claim, which is why it's a <laughs> false one. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, so I think the, the way to responsibly go about developing a worldview, and I say this, 
in, in absolute earnestness, you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm obviously not paid by the church. I, I'm not saying this as someone who is out to get uh, anyone, you know, members of the church or non-members of the church. I, I earnestly believe what I believe. And I earnestly believe that, that it's possible to responsibly hold just about any major worldview. I think you can responsibly and rationally believe the church isn't true. I, I think that's the wrong position. And I think if you do insufficient research that in fact, well, okay. Uh, it's kind of complicated because in our worldview, um, the witness of the spirit is really, really central. And so I don't know, you know, I can't say that someone else has not received the witness of the spirit or that they aren't in a position to receive it. I can't say that because I don't, I don't know them internally. Right. Um, but I do believe that there are uh, rational and responsible critics of the church who don't accept, you know, our truth claims. But I think the way to do it rationally is to, to be self-aware to some extent, just, I'm not saying that everyone has to be a philosopher and develop this really rigorous and in-depth worldview. It's not impossible for anyone to, to investigate all of the, the claims that would go into a worldview, but, you know, be aware of how kind of epistemology works at a basic level. I think many people default to a sort of scientific naturalism or in kind of a, it's kind of used pejoratively, but scientism, right? This idea that science is the only way of viewing reality and every true claim can be, can be contained within science. And that's kind of a caricature, you know, um, particularly of philosophers. I don't think even the logical positivists really held some, anything that quite that strong. Uh, but I think many people who are not as, as steeped in philosophical literature do default to something like this, right? And so they say, well, if you don't have empirical evidence, you know, knock down empirical evidence for the Book of Mormon, you can't rationally believe in it. And I, I would say, while you can hold that worldview, I think it's not a philosophically tenable one. If you look at just, just you know, some, some fairly basic epistemology and the way that we think that knowledge works, I don't think that's a, resp uh, I don't think it's, I mean, yeah, I think once you look into it, it's not a particularly rational way of looking at the world. I think it makes a great deal more sense to say that there are other methods of acquiring knowledge. And so it's difficult to have conversations about the history of the Book of Mormon or Book of Abraham or, you know, the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith without being aware of these background assumptions that we bring into the conversation. Because a critic of the church who thinks that you can only believe in the Book of Abraham based on empirical evidence has the assumption that empirical evidence is the only, you know, grounds for rational belief. And so it's not really worthwhile engaging with someone like that because our claim is not, or I think it ought not to be that we can believe the, the book of Abraham just on empirical evidence. There is good empirical evidence, but I think it's clear that in our worldview, at least the real proper um, basis for belief is a spiritual witness. Uh, and so until someone recognizes that that's a valid uh, kind of epistemic encounter with reality, they're, they're never going to accept your stance, right? It's a, it's a, it's a losing battle. It's in vain. Yeah. And, so, and I agree with, yeah. I agree yeah, with that to yeah. a degree, but um, in Alma 32 and Alma 33, I think we see that that spiritual witness isn't just like, I, I think when we, when we say spiritual witness, we, we have to be really careful because it's not just that we have a spiritual witness is that after we have seen some evidences, then we have a spiritual witness based on those evidences. And I would say that evidences don't necessarily have to be like, you don't have to like see a tape you're at in the time of the book of Mormon <laughs> for that to be an evidence. The evidence could just be you reading the book and you, and you having an experience with it and seeing true principles in it. And that could lead to a spiritual experience. So I would say that we have to, we have to nuance this where we don't oh, believe that spiritual, spiritual witnesses are without evidence. We believe that spiritual yeah, witnesses right. come because of evidence. Yes, no, you're right. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. So yeah, I, it's, it's difficult to talk about. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated subject, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right that because our belief systems are holistic, right. And they, they're taken 
um, as a whole. And we develop beliefs, not just based on one thing or another, but based on all of our experience in total. Uh, I think it would be irrational if you had one spiritual experience and then every single thing in the rest of your life contradicted the spiritual experience. I think it, I think it would be irrational to, to then stay in the church or, or at whatever tradition. Uh, but the, the fact is, you know, for me personally, I've had the spiritual witnesses repeatedly and I feel like there's an enormously uh, philosophically robust position to be held within the church. And I think there are great historical defenses and, and great, you know, kind of, um, exegetical reasons and, and scriptural reasons to accept the church. Um, and but just in, you know, in, in my experience as well with other people, I've seen the gospel change other people's lives. I've seen, um, you know, other people have these spiritual witnesses. Yeah. You know, so, so, so you're right that it's, it's not just these spiritual witnesses in isolation. It's the totality of our experience that I think determines our worldview. Right. Um, yeah. And, and so that, that's the responsible way to go about doing it is not to privilege any particular kind of epistemology uh, any, any particular subset of, of, you know, kind of ways of accessing truth, but to be aware of, you know, what are the things I'm going to say or allow um, me to, to access truth, right? Because maybe, maybe you're in your worldview, religious experience is never going to, you know, induce truth. Uh, but I think it's unrealistic to say that only empirical evidence or like, you know, only science tells us anything true. Uh, yeah. So, 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 look at the totality of experience, which, which again, science doesn't really want to do. The scientific method is, is kind of designed to, to take out the presuppositions of the scientist. But again, that's for practical reasons. It's so that people, it's, it's to attempt to uh, make it more likely that we arrive at truth, the truth, and also that um, it makes it more practical for scientists to work together. Because if one scientist has certain different fundamental assumptions about reality, it's not gonna be productive to work with another scientist, right? Um, so there's a reason why the scientific method is as it is. But when we look at kind of worldview apologetics, I don't think it's appropriate to say, well, you need to ignore that part of your experience, now prove it to me just on these grounds. Of course, if we want to access truth, it makes sense that we would, we would you know, use all avenues to truth that are available to us, right? I think that's a really good point. And I, I would also like to add that classically scientists were, were philosophers. Yeah, it wasn't, right, yeah, it was, right? yeah, exactly. Like Lucretius's De Rerum Natura or on the, on the nature of things is Lucretius figuring out how the world works, but he uses a philosophical lens. So yeah, I, right. I, up until the 1600s, 1700s, science wasn't this amorphous thing that we have kind of idolized it to be. Um, but I would like to, to hear a little bit more about your own worldview, especially with what we've been, we've been throwing around Book of Abraham a lot. And right. I think that this is a very relevant topic right now because, you know, we've, ha we've seen on Mormon Stories podcast, Robert Rittner did an interview with John DeLynn and Radio Free Mormon, ironically, at the same time as my interview with John Gee, <laughs> not planned, ironically. Um, and they were both about the Book of Abraham. And we have John Gee, who presents evidence and says, here you go. And then Robert Rittner, who responds to, even responds directly to some of that evidence and right. then presents other evidence. Um, and I feel like a lot of people are left feeling indecisive because there's this framework set up that because Dr. John Gee is a religious person right. and a scholar that he is less objective inherently than Dr. Robert Rittner, which of course we all know that isn't true. We all have, yep. as we've talked about, assumptions that we buy into. So I, I would like to hear a little bit about how you view the book of Abraham and how you can see this fitting within a Latter-day Saint worldview. Yeah. So for me, and I, I may be a little bit more um, disinclined to empiricism than than some or many maybe. And so empiricism is just the idea that that 
um, you know, empirical knowledge, the knowledge of the senses, or uh, yeah, sorry, like I guess going through the senses is, is the primary, if not the only way to access knowledge, right? Uh, so I'm, I, I kind of lean a little bit further away from that, I think, than some. So for me, questions like the Book of Abraham. So, so okay, so think about this. Um, we have kind of philosophical claims that undergird every single worldview. And then we move outwards, right? So we have very basic things like, like logic. What is the nature of logic? And then we have, you know, kind of basic epistemology and metaphysics, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind. And these are very foundational. They precede, I think, any other work in, in the natural sciences, in the social sciences. Uh, and so as we get further along, uh, you know, we move more things into things like theology and then finally into the study of scripture and, and empirical things and historical studies. So for me, historical studies generally fall toward the periphery of the system of belief. And so I have more foundational beliefs, um, which will often overrule even, I think, my own experience. So if, if you experience something that seemed logically contradictory, right, say that, um, I don't know, I don't know how you would experience this, but, you know, something was A and not A, right? So it violated the law of non-contradiction. Uh, that would be incomprehensible, right? I would rule out that experience in favor of this more basic belief that I have in, in the laws of logic obtaining. And so, you know, there is a give and take. I, I think I'm very convinced by the argument of Hilary Putnam that even, and, and, and actually uh, Willard Van Allman Quine as well, that even very basic beliefs, very, very basic, they thought even the laws of logic could be revised in the face of empirical experience. And so it's a give and take. I mean, we, we generally prefer to change less things in our belief system. So more significant beliefs, that is beliefs closer to the center, when they change, we'll have huge reverberations throughout the entire system, right? Um, so, so like planting a cause is depth of ingression, right? So think of this more ingressed will have a greater impact on your system. Um, and so we, we, I think we tend to prefer less of that, but it's sometimes important to do that. So I think that spiritual witnesses fall quite close to the center, but as well, I think I have philosophical reason to accept the church. I think that the, the philosophical positions that we can take as members of the church are just phenomenal. I absolutely love it. I think we occupy this really awesome middle ground between uh, kind of nihilistic naturalism and really extravagant um, classical Christianity, the, the kind of metaphysics they have to endorse there. Um, so I think I have philosophical reasons to accept. I have this experience in my life of not just religious experience, but seeing my life change and, and miracles in my life and, and the, you know, the life of, of those around, lives of those around me. Uh, and so all this together, plus, let's say, you know, the empirical evidence is for the Book of Mormon, um, you know, uh, uh, things in the life of Joseph Smith, all sorts of things that, that we might take even on historical grounds to, to demonstrate the, the validity of the church, you know. Um, together, that makes me uh, quite convinced of the church. And so what, you know, what do I do when I come across contradictory evidence? Let's, let's say that, we, that, that apologists had no good reason to accept the history of the Book of Mormon. We had no positive evidence. So all there was was these kind of problems that are the here, you know, surrounding the papyri and, and Egypt, Egyptology, these questions in Egyptology. I would be okay staying in the church. And I know that there are lots of critics who would, who would find that really problematic. They would, would scoff at this. But I'm saying as someone who is, is uh, very aware of the, of the epistemology that, that goes into this, right? That the, the way that we balance rational beliefs in this belief system. I think it doesn't make sense to throw away this, this body of other positive reasons to accept the church in the face of a, a relatively small peripheral set of, of problems. I mean, I, I understand that many people take this to be really, really significant, right? Really important, quite central. Uh, but to me, the truth claims of the church primarily don't revolve around Abraham, right? They revolve around Joseph Smith, uh, the nature of God, right? The nature of Christ, our relationship to Christ. Uh, the Book of Mormon is fairly central. And obviously scripture is important, but 
even if we don't find any answers in the book of Abraham, I would be happy to stay in the church. That said, uh, I, I don't think, you know, I'm not, I'm not compelled by the negative evidence at all. I, you know, if I approach this kind of negatively with, with an understanding of the assumptions that go into it, if you don't assume the church is false, it's not in any way conclusive, right? The arguments against the book of Abraham. There are things like, you know, the catalyst theory, which, you know, is, is, a, is a sort of concession to the critics in some ways. Uh, but I think, in fact, actually just makes a great deal more sense of the way that the translation process works anyway. I mean, you know, given the way that we know the Book of Mormon was translated, uh, I think it's perfectly compatible with that. Given the way that even Revelation works, I think it's perfectly compatible. Um, and on, on the kind of philosophy of language level, there's awesome stuff there, too. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, okay, so so my point is, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of long-winded no, today. <laughs> no, this is really good. Um, yeah, so my point is, even if... Uh, Okay, so, so, so the historical sciences are probabilistic, right? We can only ever say probably. So, so we have um, documents, artifacts that we look at, and we can probabilistically date them. We can probabilistically interpret them. Uh, we have these sets of evidence that we have to kind of fill out the picture more generally. Edratologists do this all the time, but so that, you know, all sorts of historians and, and, you know, scientists, economists, all these things, right? We have these bits of evidence and we fill out this whole picture. That's probabilistic. Interpreting the evidence is probabilistic. Uh, and so it's never ever going to be totally preclusive of a view, right? So total preclusion, I think, would be like a logical contradiction, right? So if your view is logically contradictory, it'd be very, very hard to, to sustain that view. Now, it's not, again, totally ruled out in my view. Um, like Hilary Putnam at one point in his career thought that um, quantum mechanics uh, entailed that one of the logical law, the classical logical laws wasn't true which is very hard to conceive of. Um, but I think it's possible that it's revisable. But basically we have these really, really core beliefs. Logic, you know, is really, really central. We can't really see how it could be false. I think spiritual witness is very close to that. So certain basic kind of epistemological things, um, you know, properly basic beliefs maybe in, in some ways. Um, you know, maybe like um, uh, Descartes' cogito, right? I think therefore I am. And can we really doubt that we think? Uh, so these sorts of things are, are at the core and we can't really doubt them. On, on the historical side, we can doubt. It's not totally preclusive. I mean, we can have really strong evidence, uh, but it will never be totally preclusive. It's always logically possible to come up with even an ad hoc solution, right, for, for pretty much any science, well, for, for any scientific theory that doesn't in entail a logical contradiction. And so I think given that, um, yeah, I, I, I can never be bothered sufficiently by a small set of problematic empirical evidence to the point of where I could question these much more foundational, I think, ep more epistemically certain, uh, beliefs. And, and you know, maybe in the face of if every single empirical evidence about everything the church claims um, were, were against the, the church's truth claims, that would be much harder rationally, but also psychologically, right? But um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm talking really big picture here. I'm not getting into details of the book of Abraham. It's not something that I have, um, uh, it's, it's not in my area of interest. So I'm familiar with many of the arguments that go into it, but I'm not really um, steeped in the details of, of the arguments about the, you know, the, the specific details of the papyri. Um, so I don't want to get into the details, that's, that's, but that's my approach to these sorts of questions. It would be, I, think, I think it would be genuinely rational for me to reject all of the positive evidences I have in the face of one set of, of negative evidence or you know, contrary evidences, if that makes sense. Because it would, if I did that all the time, I would never believe anything. And I think that's a really good point too. And, and that's why I asked the question too, because we can have people on to talk about when we have, and we're, yeah, and we're going and to great. in the future about, about the specific evidences. But I do, I do feel like it, what it really comes down to and Dan Ellsworth said this quite eloquently. Oh, he's got, yeah. He says it excellently. Yeah. He puts it. Very yeah. Well. He says it perfectly is, is whether or not it actually matters. And I think so often we, 
we see these things as mattering too much in my opinion um so but then but then the pushback would be like okay well so hannah if you're saying that evidences that the book of abraham is false um don't matter then what does matter to you so i that's the same question that i like to pose to you what do you think matters what what needs to be true in order to accept certain things yeah i mean so so the core of the of the gospel really is god is real christ is real he performed the atonement for us right um i think i think the prophetic calling of joseph smith the fact that we have a, a prophet currently who speaks for god and the history of the book of mormon i think those are the very core beliefs you know kind of unique to the gospel obviously we have separate you know obviously you know reality is real we can know things right we, we have to reject skepticism and but these are common to most worldviews so as far as as accepting the gospel worldview i would say you know those are really the core beliefs there may be a couple that i'm missing um but, but those those are the things that we have to believe and so if we have very strong reason to accept those things well i think you know let's say uh, the prophetic calling of joseph smith let's say i know on on good grounds so i've justified true belief on good grounds that joseph smith was a prophet well i think that entails that either the book of Mormon, uh, the book of Abraham, um, is something like what it professes to be. So it could be pseudepigraphal. It could be um, just inspired writing, right? Maybe I don't think it's a core belief to say it's historical, but I think it's much more likely that it is. Um, either that's that's the case, or it's not a problem that it's not scripture. That I find very unlikely. I think it would be a problem if it weren't anything like you know anything inspired. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, it, since I have good reason to accept Joseph Smith's prophethood and the kind of general core truth came to the church. It's it's logically entailed that that it's okay <laughs> that the, the book of Abraham somehow works with that and maybe I can't see clearly now uh, but that's all right because I have sufficient epistemic grounding to have knowledge in the church independently of that right that's a really good point and I I think that that's what this this comes down to is that we have core beliefs and so often those core beliefs are tied to other things sorry there was a bug on my foot and i was just <laughs> removing it it's like it's the this won't be re- this won't be recorded um but it's like this big oh wow wow <laughs> I know. actually i'll leave that in there that's really fun that's super fun <laughs> um but i think what, what what it comes down to is a lot of these beliefs are tied to other beliefs like for me the belief that president nelson is a prophet is inherently tied to the revelation that he receives and gives to the church has to be true right because because right that's the test of a prophet in deuteronomy right is that he won't preach false prophecies and of course like we could get into ethical lying we could get into other things like that um but for me that's largely irrelevant and that the majority of the time what the prophet says i i just accept because i'm like it fits within the as long as it fits within the worldview and that's with modern prophets older prophets i'll concede that it gets a little bit trickier and (laughs) there's some statements that i'm like yeah i'm not gonna accept that one um but again but like, that, like you said it's okay if if the worldview is true then it has to work out somehow right so we, exactly. i think we have this i think everyone has to say that worldviews are, at some level are holistically justified right so ju- justified as being part of a whole so we don't have to have independent verification independent reason to believe every single proposition um you know so you can think of things like uh let's see um let's say uh god exists right um and so, you know, so what does that entail? I think, I think that certainly entails, uh, you know, and, and, and like the early, early modern philosophers like Descartes were really big on this. Um, let's say that, that our, our senses don't generally deceive us, right? We can have some deception, but, but they don't generally deceive us. So let's say God exists and he's a good God, right? And we can, you know, arrive at that at some independent means. We have good reason to believe that. We don't then have to have independent, say, like scientific reason to think that our senses don't deceive us. I, I don't even know how we 
could have very good scientific reason to say that if we're questioning all of it, because obviously we'd be using our senses to find out that our senses are reliable. Um, but right, so, so we don't have to have independent verification for this belief if it is justified by other more basic and well-supported beliefs in our belief system. Yeah, so yeah, exactly as you say. If the church is true, if, if President, Mons uh, President Nelson is a prophet, then it's, you know, we, it works out somehow, right? Even if there are things that we struggle with as individuals that, that prophets might say, it's going to work out somehow because we have independent reason to think the whole, the worldview as a whole is true. So we holistically justify belief in things we don't have direct evidence for. Yeah. And I think that's a really, a really eloquent way of putting it. And that's how I've been approaching my worldview too, for a long time is I got really frustrated with seeing every single issue as having to be something that's justifiable for me on a personal level. I do right. think that we do need people to justify every single issue. I mean, sure, like, yeah, that's, that's what, what we both do. Is. Yeah. 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 We both do different things too, but I do think when it comes down to it for the average believer, and that's, that's what I'm really concerned about is the average believer. I don't think yeah. they necessarily need to sift through all this material. So my last question to you, it's always my favorite question to ask because I think it's a really fun question. <laughs> um, and it's twofold. So the first question is how would you, say an average believer should educate themselves to develop a worldview and then the second question that is also really fun is what is your starter pack for becoming an apologist <laughs> those are great <laughs> questions yeah those are very good questions uh so in terms of for developing a worldview, I, mean, I would love to see more work by um, Latter-day Saint scholars on kind of self-consciously talking about what it means to hold a worldview and how we come to, to come to arrive at that, um, because there's not a great deal of work explicitly on that topic. Uh, but, you know, in terms of how to arrive at it, obviously studying the scriptures a great deal is of the utmost import, right? I mean, the core truth claims of the church come from the scriptures. Uh, but, but, you know, outside of that, I think, yeah, just investigating the the even superficially, the, uh, the big areas in this, right? So um, biblical studies generally have a, have a general idea of where, you know, the state of, of current biblical studies, the general state of the questions of the, on, the, on, the, on the Book of Mormon, um, you know, general epistemology, some metaphysics, some, you know, maybe philosophy of language. Um, so so being, being just being aware of the issues and how they fit together. And I think as you study more, it becomes much clearer how they do fit together, how they rely on one, you know, one another. Um, so yeah, I, I would say for, for, for coming to develop a worldview, just educating yourself on the issues, but being aware of, of where they all lie, right? It's not all just questions about the historicity of our books of scripture, you know, or, or historical questions. It also has to be these sort of bigger picture philosophy, uh, you know, philosophical and theological questions. Um, as far as uh, kind of a starter pack for apologetics, I would love to see apologists be just more generally aware of uh, at least some basic philosophy. And so I think any introductory epistemology book would be fine, really. I mean, I don't have a particular recommendation on that. Um, I love to read uh, Descartes' Meditations. I think he's wrong pretty much about all of it, you know, all the main parts. Uh, but it's, it's uh, really commonly used as an introductory text in philosophy classes, uh, and it's just excellent. It's really, it's, it's, it's good, easy reading and fun philosophy. Um, at, at the kind of next level up, um, intermediate to advanced philosophy. Blake Osler has, I'm sure many people know, he's, he's a really preeminent uh, Latter-day Saint philosopher today. Um, currently a three volume series called Exploring Mormon Thought in which he gets into some really nitty gritty details of philosophy. Uh, and that's really important for apologetics. I mean, when I say apologetics, I mean, there's kind of three parts to it. There's like the defensive part where you're diffusing objections, the positive part where you're building your worldview, and then the sort of critical part where you're criticizing other people's worldviews. And I think on that latter score, the church has not often done that. And I think there's good reason 
at the sort of moral level is kind of icky sometimes. Uh, but awareness, an awareness of the basic tenets of alternative worldviews and being able to criticize them, I think is very important or show why they're flawed, right? And so really things like, you know, Thomas Aquinas is the kind of the first 20 questions of the Summa, which give you a really clear picture of the classical Christian God. Um, so, you know, we're kind of being more aware of, of, of outside of ourselves, you know, what, what's out there. Um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, so for, for apologists, I mean, I, I think it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a broad education. I think it has to be. I mean, you know, as far as like particular works within the church, um, you know, there's, there's always lots of work coming out, you know, Interpreter and Fair and Maxwell Institute. Um, like Ethan Sprout's essay on, on, you know, Skin as Garments of Book of Mormon is really good if you're kind of struggling with that issue. Um, you know, John Gee and Mullenstein put out works on the, on the Book of Abraham. Richard Bushman's um, you know, work on Joseph Smith is really excellent as well. I, I, it's, I'm, that's a, I, I've realized I'm giving a really lame answer here. I mean, if, if, there's, if there's someone I'd like to see um, scholars engage with more in the church, Thomas Kuhn is getting some good um, uh, kind of time in the limelight in, in the Latter-day Saint scholarship. Um, but I think Hilary Putnam is just a phenomenal, phenomenal philosopher, just incredible. Um, and I would love to see more engagement with that. I, I'm, you know, I'm hoping to, to, to present some of that, but... Uh, I would love people to engage more with that because it's just excellent, excellent philosophy and it has phenomenal applications in the church and things. That's, that's something I, I think um, apologists who are more established, I would like to see do some, do some stuff with that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, some of them listen to the podcast, so I'm sure that they'll hear that and then just go for it. But anyways, thanks so much. This was a really great interview and I'm just really excited for my listeners to hopefully be able to form a more cohesive worldview um, before we close, I just want you to one last time plug your stuff just so people can know where to find you. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm, I've, I've got the YouTube channel LDS philosophy and that's uh, I've got a Twitter as well where I'll, you know, post the videos when they, when they come out, I've got two videos there now. I've got plans for lots and lots more interview with, with Tarek um, and, and Robert Boylan, who you've had on recently uh, with Jackson Washburn. Um, yeah, there's, there'll be lots and lots on there moving forward. I hope, hope to be able to, to help members become more kind of, philosophically engaged through that through that venue and i'd love to get feedback and, and criticism and all sorts from from people on there as well awesome. so that's lds philosophy on, on youtube great thank you so much joseph and thanks for listening to fair voice our next episode will be very exciting it's going to be about theology and then after that we're going to pick right up with book of mormon historicity so everyone should keep listening